if you've ever done any sort of leadership or teamwork course, uh, you may well have come across the compliment sandwich feedback technique. Uh, when you've got some constructive criticism to give, uh, step one, say saying positive. That's the bottom slice of bread. Uh, step three, stay saying, say saying positive. That's the top slice of bread. And then step two is the meat of the matter, uh, where you gently and carefully rip into them. Now, I don't think the Apostle Paul took many leadership courses in his time, uh, but as we come to today's passage, it looks like he figured out how to do it by himself. Uh, He's just spent six chapters uh, showing to the Corinthians how he is the apostle of the special ministry of reconciliation. Um, That is, uh, he's out there to share the message about how we can be reconciled to God through what Jesus has done. And as he comes to the end of the section, he has an important piece of constructive criticism for the Corinthian church. Uh, So grab your Bibles uh, to that second reading in 2 Corinthians and come to chapter 6, verse 11. Uh, There, Paul gives the bottom slice of the bread. He says things like, We have spoken to you freely, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. Uh, Then in verse 13 he says, Widen your hearts also. Paul really cares for these people. Uh, We'll jump down to chapter 7, verses 2 and 3. There we see the top slice of bread. He says things like, Make room in your hearts for us. And uh, I do not say this to condemn you. For I said before that you are in our hearts. You see, Paul, he's about to give them some criticism, not to condemn them. They're in his heart. But he's appealing to them to widen theirs. And they're going to do this by listening to step two, the meat of the matter. Paul picks up the most significant matter the Corinthians needed to deal with. And it's a serious matter for us today as well. It all centers around the concept of the temple of God. So we're going to look at this in three parts today. Unyoking the temple, being the temple, and cleansing the temple. Uh, First up, Paul begins verse 14 saying, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now, coming from New Zealand, I'm naturally an expert on farming techniques. Uh, So let me explain this to you. Uh, Back in the days before tractors... People used animals to pull a plough through a field to turn over the soil. The harness that connects the animal to the plough was called the yoke. And if you had a particularly upmarket plough, it might even have a double yoke so you could connect two animals at the same time. But this would only work if you had two animals of the same size and kind. If you were to have like a big ox, you know, with horns on the left... Uh, but then on the right, you're going to have a, like a small donkey, like a Shrek. You're going to have troubles. Uh, not only will the donkey never shut up, but they're not at the same level. They're not going to pull at the same pace. It's going to twist. They are unequally yoked. And Paul says Christians should not be like that with unbelievers. Uh, what exactly is Paul talking about? Uh, how are... Uh, Believers and unbelievers like a donkey and an ox. I'll let you work out which is which. Um, Some people think it might be to do with uh, forming business partnerships with unbelievers. 
Uh, others think it might refer to um, marriage with unbelievers. But often when we're not quite sure what a Bible verse means, the best thing to do is just keep reading. Because often the context helps us work out what it means. And so Paul follows up this statement with five questions. Question one, what partnership has righteousness, uh, being right with God, uh, have to do with lawlessness? Uh, That's ignoring God and his laws. The answer, none. Question two, what fellowship has light with darkness? The answer, none. I've done two. You guys can help me out with the next three. What accord has Christ with Belial? That's another name for Satan. Anyone got any ideas? None. Uh, Question four. What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Any ideas? I'll give you the answer. It's none. (laughs) Question five. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? None. Get the point? Uh, The climax is in the final question, uh, the connection between the temple of God and idols. For uh, idol worship was big all over ancient Corinth. You know, there were temples all over the city. Everyone would have been involved at some point. Uh, In 1 Corinthians, the the first letter that Paul wrote, uh, he spent three chapters, chapters 8 to 10, dealing with this issue of Christians being sucked into worshipping idols. Uh, Particularly this was by eating meat that had been part of a religious sacrificial ceremony. Uh, In the first New Testament reading, we heard Paul's conclusion. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Uh, He said in chapter 10, verse 19, uh, What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. What accord has Christ with Belial and demons? None. The temple of God has no agreement with idols, and it has no agreement with other religions. So if unbelievers worship idols and follow different religions, then the believer must not be unequally yoked with them in this. And the reason has to do with our identity. We are the temple of God. It was sort of a strange thing for Paul to say, because at at that time, uh, the Jewish temple was still standing in Jerusalem. Uh, To get what Paul means here, we're going to have to think about the Old Testament concept of a temple. And that's actually precisely where Paul turns to in verses 16 to 18. Uh, Have a look at your Bible. There's a a big quote there. Uh, That's actually made up of at least six different parts of the Old Testament. Uh, They're not exact quotes from the Old Testament. Paul hasn't just gone, you know, control C, control V. Uh, He just knows his Old Testament so well that he takes them, blends them together to show us some of the key promises God has to make to us. You really need to know the Old Testament to understand the New, uh, don't we? Uh, Keep persevering in reading it, guys. Uh, It can be tough, but if you persist, I'll 
guarantee you'll make these connections more and more like Paul does. Uh, But in these quotes, we learn two key things about what it means to be the temple of God. Firstly, being the temple of God means that God dwells with us. I live in a college dormitory uh, for single men. Uh, At the moment, we have an elderly academic from overseas living with us. Uh, This guy has written like a whole bookshelf worth of books. And he dwells with us. Uh, He watches movies of us in the common room. Uh, He has breakfast of us in the dining room. Uh, It's great. Uh, If you've got a question about your latest essay, uh, you just go ask the guy who wrote the textbook. Um, It's great to have an esteemed person dwell with us. How much better to have God himself dwell with us. Uh, Look at verse 16. God says, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. Uh, That came from our Old Testament reading in Leviticus chapter 26. God had made a covenant contract uh, with the nation of Israel. And on God's part, he was going to live among them. He did this by being present in the temple in Jerusalem. And from his temple, he would bless and protect Israel. And he even changed his relationship to Israel. In these verses, we see that he becomes their God and Father. And they become his people, his sons and daughters. And for us Christians, we too have had our relationship changed with God. We have been reconciled to him. We spent a lot of time looking at that last week. Through what Jesus has done, we can now call God our God and our Father. And God promises to dwell with us today. Uh, Not in a temple building, not in a church building, but in our hearts. God has given us his Holy Spirit Uh, so that he can live inside us today. Uh, That's God himself dwelling inside us. And and all of us who believe, we have the Spirit of God, and so together, we are the temple. And if we're the temple of God, the second thing we learn is that means we also are now holy. You can see that in verse 17, um, which is actually mostly a quote from Isaiah 52. At that point in time, the Israelites were exiles in the land of Babylon. And God was telling them, come out. God was rescuing them. But on the way, they were to be separate from them, uh, the them's the Babylonian people, and they were to touch no unclean thing. In the Old Testament law, there were lots of these commands about what was clean and what was unclean. Now, it's just not talking about if things have got mud on it or not. Uh, it's more than uh, just doing your laundry. Uh, for if you touch something that was unclean, you became unclean. And if you were unclean, then you couldn't enter the temple. The temple was holy because God was holy. To be holy, that just means to be um, set apart or different, special. And in this case, what sets God apart uh, is his sheer awesomeness and perfection and purity. And what God is set apart from is sinful, unbelieving humans. Uh, At the time of this quote, it was the Babylonian people. Uh, Today, 
It's all those who don't believe. If us believers together are the temple of God, we too must be holy. And so we must avoid the things that could make us unclean. The case in point is the worship of idols. We must not be unequally yoked to unbelievers in this. And that means we truly have a radical identity. We are more than just a club that meets on Sundays. Uh, I'm a member of the Sydney University Bushwalkers Club. Uh, I love bushwalking. Uh, Every once in a while, when I feel like it, uh, I go on a walk with them. But my commitment level is pretty low, uh, and I'm not even a student at the university. (laughs) Being a Christian is nothing like that. Uh, Being a Christian means being changed at your very core. It's not just having a common interest. It's having a common identity and a radical one at that. How do you feel about having such a a radical identity? Uh, When you look at all the unbelievers that you know, do you see yourself as fundamentally different When you look at your non-Christian family and friends, do you see yourself as a new creation being transformed into Christ's image? And do you see them as blind sinners who will one day face God's judgment? How do you feel saying that you are right and the unbelievers in our society are wrong? Now, there's lots of things the Bible doesn't speak about. So, you know, scientists and philosophers, they can really help us out in many ways. But when it comes to the meaning of life, when it comes to questions of what is the right way to live, when it comes to questions of what happens after death, how do you feel saying that unbelievers in our society are wrong? Uh, We're going to keep getting pushed to say, Everyone's belief is valid. Everyone has their own aspect of the truth. Can you look them in the eye and graciously say no? To deny our radical nature is to deny God's holiness. Let us cling to our radical identity. We are the temple of God. And a lot of this, Paul is pretty clear on what we have to do. Uh, Have a look at chapter 7, verse 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. It's not that cleanliness is next to godliness. Cleanliness is Godliness. Uh, But Paul doesn't fully explain here what he means by defilement. Uh, But in light of what we've looked at so far, it probably means cleanse ourselves of the idol worship that unbelievers take part in. The reason for this is so that we can bring holiness to completion. Uh, I don't think this means uh, being perfect in the sense that, you know, we reach 100% in the holiness scale. I think it more has to do with completing our purpose, being who we're meant to be. God has called us to be his holy temple who are utterly separate from pagan idol worship. 
by cleansing ourselves of such, we are completing who we are meant to be. Uh, For many of our Christian brothers and sisters around the world, it's reasonably clear about how to apply this passage to them. Uh, My Zimbabwean friend, uh, he's told me how his Christian family has to refrain from financially contributing to a sacrifice to demons uh, for their protection. Uh, My Singaporean friend tells me of the struggles Christians have with ancestor worship, which is a a big part of family life. Uh, My Japanese friend says they've got that and more. Uh, Primary schools even go on school outings to the temple uh, to pray for blessing and success. As we pray for our brothers and sisters around the world, let's pray they'll be able to cleanse themselves from idol worship. Um, Here today, we all come from different cultural backgrounds. Uh, This may be a part of your background as well. Uh, You'll need to work out how to cleanse yourself from this. Uh, Some of this actually even sneaks into secular Australian culture. Uh, One time my sister was going to do some yoga along with this video. Um, I wasn't going to do it. I'm so inflexible. If I can sort of bend down and touch my knees, it's a good day. Um, But I I thought I'd check it out. First scene on the video, um, the lady appears in a very sort of contorted pose. And she says, let's start by saluting each other. She said, "Um, uh, the eternal spirit in me salutes the divine light in you. There's a bit more than just stretching going on in that video. Now, many yoga courses, you know, they've removed all the religious components and they're fine. Uh, But we do need to be aware and be careful. Uh, We, the holy temple, need to cleanse ourselves, i.e. get rid of, anything that defiles by its connection to the worship of other religions. So things that still have traces of Buddhist or Hindu teaching, uh, things like horoscopes, tarot card readings, uh, superstitions, um, such as saying mantras or wearing lucky charms or bracelets, cleanse them out of your life. Wash them away. They have no agreement with the temple of God. By and large, we're a secular nation. Uh, Religions are sort of pushed to the private sphere, Uh, You can get through life easily without interacting with them. But although there aren't physical idols, our society still has things which are idol-like. Fundamentally, an idol is just something that you've replaced God with as the most important in your life. It's the thing which you fear and respect and devote yourself to. It's the thing you go to to get what you want. In short... It's the thing that you worship. Although our society has gotten rid of physical idols, there are many things which are idol-like. There's materialism, where we devote ourselves to having enough, uh, which in reality means having everything. Uh, There's sex, which is where we define our life as fulfilled if we are sexually active and satisfied. Uh, There are children where their education, music lessons and sports teams take priority over everything else and their success is paramount. And us who follow Jesus, we are not immune to being sucked into these idol-like things. Uh, When I wasn't following Jesus, 
I worshipped career. Uh, I was going to change the world by being a lead researcher on renewable energy resources. Uh, this God was going to grant me importance, power and respect as everyone looked at me and saw my successful career. Now that I follow Jesus again, I need to keep battling with my desire for the same thing, just with a Christian equivalent. Uh, for me, things like the career of full-time ministry and you know, having a church of thousands and converting millions. We are not immune. What idol-like things tempt you? In the end, though, applying this passage to us today is quite hard because these things aren't quite what this passage is talking about. But Paul's talking about actual physical idols. You see, in ancient Corinth, they had these idol-like things and they had the actual idols. They had both, and Paul warns them about both in 1 and 2 Corinthians. Uh, yet in different ways. In our society, we've done away with the idols, which means we're now completely devoted to idol-like things. And this is hard because it's, it's like the worst kind of cancerous growth. You can't just chop it out because it's embedded in vital organs. The worship of physical idols, that can be chopped out. You just stop going to idol temples. But the worship of idol-like things, uh, that's hard because it's tied up with good gifts from God. You know, I don't want any of us to chop our job, our relationships, or our family completely out of our lives. Uh, they're good things. But we do need to cleanse them from making them the objects of our worship. Uh, so how do we cleanse ourselves from worshipping idol-like things? Uh, let me finish by suggesting two ways. Firstly, we have to learn to think rightly about each of these things. Uh, if we want to think rightly about materialism and greed, well, let's look at 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. Uh, we'll get there in a couple of weeks. If we want to think rightly about sex, well, we should go back to 1 Corinthians and look at chapters 6 and 7, where Paul deals with it. If we want to think rightly about career and what's important for our children, we should go back and read 1 Corinthians 7 and see in what manner Paul thinks we should live our lives in this present age. As we read scripture, God will teach us how to live in light of what Jesus has done. We may not get a clear-cut answer in this, though. For example, if you're looking for a new car and you've got option A, option B, what is cleansing yourself from idol-like greed look like? Uh, does it mean always going for the, the cheapest option? Uh, does it mean going for neither and buying a horse and cart instead? Uh, often as Christians, we end up being free to choose, but the Bible gives us the principles we need to hold on to. Secondly, we need to prepare ourselves to bravely go against the flow. You see, part of what made idol worship in Corinth difficult was that everybody was doing it. Christians were tempted to join in, not necessarily because they wanted to, but because they didn't want to stand out and lose their place in society. They wanted to be yoked with unbelievers. As we cleanse ourselves from worshipping these idol-like things, we're going to stick out. 
uh, we will probably be mocked and maybe even worse. Are you ready to be mocked? Are you ready to look them in the eye and say, I am different. I have different priorities as a Christian. I won't do the same things as you. That is radical. We would only do that if we had a good reason. And we have the best. The holy God is dwelling in us, his temple. Uh, This God is utterly holy. He is completely perfect. He is entirely faultless. He is more faithful than any spouse, more reliable than any friend, more loving than any parent. He is more generous than the greatest philanthropist. He is more sacrificial than an Anzac, wiser than the greatest professor, fairer than any Supreme Court judge, more powerful than the greatest president. One day, everyone who has ever lived will bow down to him in terror and in awe, and that holy God dwells in us, his temple. Us, you know, us frail, weak people who are always tired and busy and screw things up, he lives in us, and he has made us his people. Who cares that we stick out from other Australians who are busy following small ambitions of careers and pleasure. We are the temple of the living God. Let's unyoke ourselves from unbelievers, cleanse ourselves from idol-like things, and live lives that glorify our Lord Jesus. Amen.